the road to recovery. You might be cruising down it. A friend or family member lost on it. Or the road is, well, still under construction. Relevant Recovery Radio is about getting to that destination of normal health, mind, or strength. Now, Relevant Recovery Radio, here to give you the keys, Larry Weedy Kind. Hello, welcome to this episode. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. And my uh, featured guest featured. <laughs> today is Melanie Ziegler. Um, we work at Matthew's Hope Detox and Recovery Program. I'm the Spiritual Wellness Director and Recovery Support Team Lead. Melanie is a Recovery Support Team Specialist, and she's an LMSW. And we're excited to be with you today. We're going to talk about recovery, obviously, <laughs> um, but specifically like the family nucleus. Um, there's a chapter in, in the 12-step literature called The Family Afterward. At Matthew's Hope, we really, really love to focus on family support and family inclusion. They always say that, you know, alcoholism or drug addiction is a family disease. And we want to talk about what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like, how does how is it a family disease? I think it's that because everybody's affected in one way or another. Does that mean my family's a problem and I'm not? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> so I think that, okay, myth number one, we'll just dive right into that. Let's myth, dive in. Myth number one is that my toxic family has caused my alcoholism. Can that ever be true? No. (laughs) Right. I wish. I wish. Now, we may blame them for that, right? Or we may have been raised by drug addicts or alcoholics, or it may be genetically in my family, right? Um, Which it's not in mine. I'm the only alcoholic and drug addict, period, in my entire family on either side. And it runs through my family. So So we don't have a common denominator, right? That the family isn't the common denominator. What is our common denominator? The allergy and the obsession. The allergy and the obsession. So first of all, let's talk about what it means very quickly to be a chronic alcoholic or a drug addict. So that way, if you might be wondering if you're a chronic alcoholic or a drug addict, or you have a family member yeah. that maybe has a drug or alcohol problem and you're trying to get bearings on what kind of help they need. In the 12-step world, there's a very specific type and this type is going to have to like join a program of action and work the steps. And But there's other types of people that may drink or do drugs that aren't like me and you, Melanie. Right. And uh, and so Melanie mentioned the, the dual litmus test, this physical allergy and this mental obsession. So, Melanie, how would you describe the first symptom, the physical allergy? What does that even mean? You always say that one first. It always throws me off because <laughs> I always do it the opposite. <laughs> So the physical allergy is a physical symptom. It's a symptom of the body. And so for me personally, it's that once I take one drug or one sip of alcohol or whatever it is, more often than not, I'm going to crave the second more than the first and the fourth more than the third. And so the symptom of the physical allergy, we call it in our literature, the phenomenon of craving. And so once I start... I take more than I intended to. Right. And as that symptom progresses over time, what I find is that we generally have little to no control over the amount once we start. Right. And so when the 12-step world and literature uses this word allergy, we're not talking about like a watering eyes or runny nose. We're talking about an abnormal reaction. (laughs) When I put drugs or alcohol in my body, I have an allergic or an abnormal reaction that most of the world doesn't have. Right. Which is, I crave more. 
I know. And so what's weird in, in the 12-step world is that you have to put the drug or alcohol in your body first to be able to experience the phenomenon of craving. Because a lot of times we hear if if I'm talking to a therapist and I'm someone that struggles with drug or alcohol use and I'm saying I've been craving, but <laughs> right. I've been sober, free from drugs and alcohol for five days mm-hmm. to the therapist. That means that I'm thinking right. about using. Right. But in in our world, it means that I put it in my body. Right. So <laughs> that that's going to confuse someone depending where you stand. So in the 12 step world, we have our own language and certain words are used in a very specific context. And it's not the normal Webster's definition of the world uh, as the world understands it. Like if I'm sitting with my family and I say, hey, I'm craving French fries, they're going to understand that I just want French fries. Mm-hmm. But if I'm sitting in a 12 step meeting and I'm like a year sober and I say I'm really craving a drink, they're all going to think I drank. Because that, everyone's going to run to help you, <laughs> right? Hopefully, yeah. Uh, because that means I've been exposed to the thing I'm allergic to, right? And that's just a twelve-step lingo. So okay, so physical allergy. Now, can someone be born with that allergy, and as, as soon as they've taken the first drink ever, they always experience that phenomenon? Is that possible? Well, yeah. And would it be possible also if someone doesn't develop that symptom for years and years? That's true, too. Yeah. And so for me, I think I always had the allergy. I always had it. (laughs) In fact, even when I think and when I have a fleeting thought about using it, I feel like I'm already experiencing the allergy, even though I haven't put it in my body. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, no. It's like I'm already going to get the party started with like a handle of crown. Yeah. And it's not just going to be one drink. It never is just one drink. Exactly. And so then let's let's briefly talk about the this other second symptom, which I always do second and you would like to do first. But I think the allergy is easiest to understand. And relate to. Yeah. And so we've got the easy one out of the way. When I put it in my body, my allergic reaction is I crave more. Second one is this mental obsession. It doesn't mean I'm obsessing about the drink or the drug. Right. All it literally means, if I have it, is I have insane thoughts that precede the first drink or drug or pill or line or whatever it is. And a lot of times I also have like the stack of evidence showing me that it's not going to end well. Right. I have this stack of evidence and I've proven to myself that drinking or doing drugs, I don't do it very well. Bad stuff sometimes happens. I shouldn't be doing it. (laughs) There's pressure on me. My family's going to get upset. Yet, that stack of evidence is shoved aside. Yeah. And this insane idea is... But just this weekend, it'll be fine. Yeah. Or just this one glass of champagne at the wedding. Or he's out of town. Or he's out of town and he won't know. Or, well, as long as I show up to work Monday through Friday, it's fine. Right. Or everybody has a beer after they mow the yard. Or, if you had the life I had. Right. Or it's prescribed to me, so oh, it's fine. yeah. Right. So there's all these insane ideas and whatever they are, that idea wins. It's insanity when you look back in hindsight. But at the time, you feel like you're choosing to drink or do drugs when really you're actually losing the power of choice. Right. And this insanity begins to creep in. I didn't develop this symptom until like after 30 years old. See, I had them both right away. Did you really? Yeah. Okay. But that that's kind of like one of the stories in the literature. Yeah. Some people have it right away. Some people develop one symptom before the other. Yeah. Um, and some people develop them both much later. But if, if a person has or develops... That craving and that insanity or that allergy or that obsession. What that that means is they have no choice and no control. They're going to drink or use. Right. All right. So that's chronic alcoholism. Don't go anywhere. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
Culture. My guest today is Melanie Ziegler. We're representing Matthew's Hope Detox and Recovery Program. If you're interested, grab a pen and paper, and I will give you some information at the end of the show uh, to get more information if you or a loved one needs detox. All right, so we were talking about the family afterward today. And the first segment, Melanie and I dissected chronic drug addiction or chronic alcoholism. And it's those two symptoms of having no choice in the matter you're going to drink and having no control in the amount once you start. It's that allergy and that obsession. And so what that means, it's kind of like a nail in the coffin on having any hope of keeping yourself sober by choice, by willpower for the rest of your life. You're going to have to seek outside help. You're not going to be able to do it alone, which is where the 12-step world comes into play because we have a solution for that type. Yay! <laughs> Woo! Woohoo! So when we're looking at families dealing with that, and I'll, I'll just speak a little bit to like my own family dealing with me with that, I can imagine how heartbroken and confused because even me being the drug addict, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop. Right. <laughs> and my family would be like calling me, crying to me, Heather, why are you doing this to yourself? Um, Heather, why don't you stop for your kids? Mm-hmm. Like they had all of these these external reasons. And you're like, I've had that same thought and yep. you don't know. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't understand, you know. Um, but I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. I had not landed in a place yet that explained these two symptoms to mm-hmm. me. I kept thinking that if I just love my kids enough, right, or if I just find this fictitious rock bottom that people speak of, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my rock bottom was probably going to be death mm-hmm. as a heroin addict. But um, family members try to do things like interventions or bring about this rock bottom or, or hold these consequences. I'm not super against having consequences and boundaries with a drug addict or alcohol, I think those are good things. Yeah. Um, but it's about understanding what the problem is so that you can have the real solution. Because if you're trying other things that aren't going to be a solution to chronic alcoholism, it's not going to work. Yeah. And so what are some things maybe, did your family try to help you get sober? Were they like trying to talk to you about your drug use and get you to see the truth? Yeah, I mean, for, <laughs> for quite some time. And one of my brothers actually flew out to Miami and he was living in Texas. So I was in Florida and uh, I say Miami, I say Florida because some people, I think there's a Miami there's a Miami in another state. Anyways, irrelevant. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking. Um, and so he flew overnight and came and got me and kind of had an intervention with him there. And then my mom on the phone and they were like, we please, please, please get help. And I had just woken up. I was groggy, still a little bit yeah. under the influence, um, you know, just a little confused on what had happened the days before. And I really think it was like a you know, a divine intervention mm-hmm. where I kind of just said yes. And like there was some oh. kind of willingness in my heart at that time. Now that didn't last. But you were receptive to their help then. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it was kind of like I felt guilty and they mm. played on that. And in that moment, I said yes. Right. Um, but I wasn't necessarily ready to stop at that point. Right. But my family did what they could to get me where I needed to go to right. separate me from the substance. Right. So I went to treatment. Um, and I did not stay sober. Um, (laughs) and, and, and that's, (laughs) yeah, it's not because the treatment didn't work. Right. It it was, I just didn't have the knowledge of my condition and the knowledge of what it was going to take to keep me stopped. I think that that's always the kicker. Let's, let's assume why would someone ever relapse? Why, why, why did, was I a chronic relapser? Right. On one hand, there's a willingness problem. Mm Mm-hmm. 
for, at first. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't willing to do what it takes to be sober. Some people actually don't want to be sober, yeah. and they're pu- they're forced by the court system or their family members, right? And some people can still do the work if they find that willingness and get well, yeah. like even if those are the circumstances. But the flip side is the education on what you're going to have to do to get well. Right. And that that's what eluded me for a long time. I kept just thinking, I've got to find uh, <laughs> my level of desperation, but I didn't have even have that language. Yeah. I was like, it's got to get, how bad does it got to get before I'm going to choose sobriety? Right. And then I think it was my fourth treatment is when I finally ended up in a good treatment center that explained to me these two things, yeah. why willpower isn't enough, this allergy and this obsession. And for the first time in my life, I was like, oh my God, my kids were never going to be enough. Yeah. Or the husband. Or the husband or whatever it is. And so if you're a family member and you're listening and you keep pleading with your family member or or trying to persuade them or show them, they know they're hurting you. They know they're causing harm. They're unhappy with their life, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the book says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. And that, that literally means that I'm not going to be able to maintain sobriety based on consequences or motivation. Or how much I love you. Or how much I love you, how much you cry to me, how much you beg me. Like something different is needed and we'll get into that. But from a loved one's perspective, how sad to go through that. I can't can't fathom, I really can't wrap my brain around like how many nights my parents or my kids probably cried themselves to sleep missing me or worrying about me. Yeah. And I was not aware of it then. And then I get sober later, and I'm just painfully aware of how much harm I must have caused them. Yeah, that I can't even fathom that. How do you, how does one even go about making that right? Um, luckily, there's there's a program. For I was that. like, that's a whole nother radio topic. <laughs> there's a program for that, but I think that here's what it took for me. Mm-hmm. I needed the education, and I needed to have the willingness. So once I had both of those things, then I also chose, luckily, to go to sober living. And, and then I managed some sober living homes, and I've worked closely with a lot of sober houses since then. From a family's perspective, they can actually enable or prolong the relapse or enable their child to not get well mm-hmm. if they do some of some things they shouldn't do. Right. What are some of those things? <laughs> um, financially uh, spoil them was one yeah and so if you find you know you think oh my kids got to have the best they're not going to any halfway house let me find one that's the mo- top of the line with a private chef or pay all this stuff right like right like, cool they might be able to get sober under under those circumstances but they could also get sober not under those circumstances that has nothing to do with it right the material the stuff. material uh i was really grateful that i didn't have a car or even a driver's license yeah so i neither. was i was stuck well i have you beat on the driver's license <laughs> just didn't have the car yeah i revoked and and fully expired and all of that so I had to go through a long list of things for five years to get that back but I say that it killed my hustle yeah right I'm sponsoring a girl right now she's young she lives with her family and and she's kind of going in and out of the program often and her mom will reach out to me for help the the mom means well right the mom loves her her daughter and just wants to help her but I'm just like cool take away her car and her phone yeah um, cool. Force her to go to sober living in another town. Cut her off. Cut her off. Yeah. And the mom's like, well, no, then she'll think I don't love her. No, no. It, it's actually loving to do that. Right. But that's so uncomfortable that's to do. That's hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My dad had to do that with me and he had to tell me he wouldn't even bring me food. I was asking him to bring me a box of cereal. Oh, man. 
man. I was like panhandling on a corner in Oklahoma yeah. City. And he said, Heather, do not ever call me again unless you want to go to treatment. Oh, man, that gives me chills. And I, because I had been manipulating them for so many years uh, for $40 here or a hamburger yeah. there, right? And it was really prolonging uh, my using. Because here's the kicker, family members listening. Don't band-aid somebody's life so much that they have no reason to seek God. There you go. Because that's what was happening in my life is that as families that meant well and loved me, they were band-aiding money or shelter or transportation or materialistic. Why the heck would I ever seek God? I think it'd be, it can be conflicting yeah. from the parental or loved one's perspective dealing with the alcoholic, the yeah. real alcoholic. What is love and where are the boundaries? It's so hard. It's such a hard balance. But really, the, the cheat sheet is probably this. If your drug addict or alcoholic family member is uh, happy with you, you're probably enabling them there. if they're in active yeah. addiction. Um, and if they're mad at you, you're probably setting some healthy boundaries. That is a great way to put it. <laughs> And are you okay with letting them be upset with you long enough to try to see if they'll seek a spiritual solution? But don't you sometimes think that the real alcoholic is manipulative enough to make the parent oh feel <laughs> so yes. bad that they feel like even though they're doing the right thing, they're doing the wrong thing? Even at the time when my dad said no, he wouldn't bring me a box of cereal, I thought he hated me. Yeah. I thought he didn't love me. Yeah. I reacted like a wild person. Is that the delusion? Yeah, yeah, that's the lie that I believed is that he's not doing what I want. That means he doesn't care about mm. me. And now, as a spiritual recovered person, I can see that's totally love right. written all over it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere. We're going to take a quick break, and you're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. My featured guest is Melanie Sinclair today. I think you didn't say it last time. I don't know if I did. I know. My husband, Donnie's not here today. Um, He is getting some medical checkups today, but I'm super excited just to do this with Melanie today, to be honest with you. I can't (laughs) wait. I hope you're listening, Donnie. (laughs) We're talking about the family afterward today, which means what does it look like for a family member to deal with trying to help their loved one get sober. And we've did a couple segments on that. We're going to jump into sobriety now. So let's say the drug addict or the alcoholic does get sober. And and there's there's a there's a whole lot of twisted ideas and delusions and toxicity in families that come along with that. And I'm thinking, "Oh my god, I just want this person to get sober so we can be okay." But the book says that cessation of drinking is but a beginning. That there's this long period of reconstruction ahead. And this ties back into like the ninth step that I just want to make amends and like clean up my wreckage. And I just want you, the family member, to know, see, I'm good. I'm different now. Mm-hmm. I'm different now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I may only have 60 days or nine months sober. I'm different now. And I have a funny story around this. And it really, not funny, kind of sad. When I was uh, three and a half years sober, Donnie and I were just goofing around one day and, and he had tousled my hair all crazy and he takes like a like a selfie, like a screenshot real quick of me. And I, I look crazy, right? And I'm just making this weird face. But he texts it to my dad and says, help me. Oh my gosh. And he was just messing around. Right. Like he just was making fun of me. He thought my dad would make fun of me too. My dad thought I had relapsed. Oh my gosh, was he already on the plane? And he like freaking called immediately. He's like, what happened? Where's where she, what, you know? Oh no. And my heart just sank because I was like, no, Dad. Like, I'm still sober. And he's like, well, what is this about? 
He was like, so serious. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny. It's, it's, but... I can laugh at it now, but at the time, I, at the time, I was actually upset at first that he would even think question your question sobriety. my sobriety. I was about three and a half years at the time. Doesn't he know what all I do? To uh-huh. But then, the, like the reality hit. Number one, I made him question and not trust anything about me. Yeah, for years. Yeah, and you can't erase all the years of the mistrust in just three years. I don't know how long it'll take mm-hmm. before my dad trusts I'm going to stay sober. He may never. Yeah. And that's fair. And it's fair because of the nature of this illness guarantees me to drink again. Yeah. If I don't stay spiritually fit, I don't think he understands that. But but the second part of me was just really sad around the fact that he's still on pins and needles. Mm-hmm. and Because he's not here. He lives in a different state. Doesn't see you often. He doesn't see me often. He doesn't talk to me every day. Um, he doesn't know the life that I live for God today and how solid in my spiritual work that I am usually I'm not great but you know what I mean but I just really don't feel like um I'm on the edge of the cliff yeah anymore um and but my poor dad you know he just what what happened and I just realized that I've got a lot of spiritual repair to still do with him my work isn't done just here's what the alcoholic wants the alcoholic just wants to be sober and be like don't you know I'm different now I put down the drink. I put down the drink. And and it's like, okay, let me give you a participation for life trophy. Oh, God, we want so much. <laughs> because I'm not drinking or doing drugs. Cool. The rest of the yeah, world the isn't world either. The world is functioning normally <laughs> without these things. And now I'm a normal person. All of a sudden, I want a what trophy. What do I deserve? What can you give me? Exactly. Do you have any stories like that where your family was not trusting that you were so sober or staying sober? Yeah. I mean, several. But the one that comes to mind is, I was kind of telling you about it earlier, is I was in outpatient therapy had had finally completed my treatment after I'd gotten kicked out per their recommendations. Anyway, long story short, I don't remember. I had been under a year sober, but for me, those first few milestones were a big deal. And so, of course, look at me, look at me. And now I remember what happened. I think I was living in sober living and there were some rumors going around that I had slipped. Or And it was probably because my behavior wasn't great. I just yeah. stopped drinking and hadn't treated anything internally. internally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so how dare my mother think that I had relapsed when all I wanted was her to pat me on the back and give me accolades um but so i was so upset so then i had resentment inventory right, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> um, but all of these things can be uh can be solved if and there can be successful readjustment within the family if yeah. everyone can be on the same basis understanding that the alcoholic is a roaring tornado yeah. for years and then puts down the drink and still the tornado. Yeah, still the if not if not doing the right work is going to be worse than a tornado. Because that's what I want family members to understand is just maintaining uh, abstinence, mm-hmm. not drinking and doing drugs. That's not recovery in the twelve step world. Cool, yeah. you're just abstinent, but there's actually a whole bunch of like internal work mm-hmm. that has to occur for this person to become whole and and kind and considerate. Yeah. yeah. And so if just removing the drink and the drug is all that's happened, then that's what we call a dry drunk, Yeah, which is, in the same token, uh, untreated alcoholism. Yeah. And so this person isn't going to be enjoyable to live with or to be around. At all. At all. It'll come out in all sorts of ways, maybe shopping or spending money or uh, porn or gambling or food addiction. Like That's what happened to my husband when he first got sober. He gave up alcohol but didn't have a solid relationship with God yet so he almost ate himself to death yeah and so he had to go through another like spiritual bottom to like come out on the other side and figure out how to rely on God through 
that. And so it comes out in a lot of ways. Just because someone's not drinking or doing drugs does not mean that all is well. Right. And so speaking on that token, if someone decides to join a program of recovery and work the 12 steps, that's going to require their time and attention. Yeah. And family members sometimes get really resentful that they feel that they've been forgotten about. Yeah. Or left out. Their spouse may have to go to some 12-step meetings or may meet with their sponsor and do step work or go to a treatment center and carry the message. There's a lot of things that this person may need to jump in and, and do sometimes every day for a while. Yeah. Uh, and the family member, I encourage you, if you're listening, to not get resentful of those things. What is happening is your loved one is trying to build a spiritual structure so that they can maintain their sobriety. And without that, they have no spiritual structure to maintain the Variety. And it says during those first days of convalescence, this will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. And I think that's a hard concept to grasp, whether you're the alcoholic or the family member, because it's it's just so foreign to what we think. We is, think. Yeah. But that's why it's so easy for a wife to get resentful. She's like, what are you what are you talking about? I've been here with right. him for the past 20 years. Or what 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 was I unable to do? Why that couldn't these... I accomplish this in my love? And why can these these other group of alcoholics help help it baffles them they don't understand it it really has nothing to do with the human not you the wife and not the fellowship of the people um it's it's about the spiritual footwork and and an alcoholic is going to need to get used to being inconvenienced and doing things they don't want to do at times they don't want to do it with people they don't want to do it with for a while yeah as part of laying that spiritual groundwork so I think that another thing that can happen in the families is throwing the past up in their face. Yeah. <laughs> they'll want to dig up the past and they'll want to throw things in their face or how much money they had spent or why they're in these financial, you know. And I want to encourage everybody to try to meet on an understanding basis, a basis of accepting that that there is a lot of past mistakes made, maybe right. on both sides. That's highly likely. There could be infidelity. Right. There could financial be troubles mm-hmm. and and maybe the children the children may be resentful dad hasn't been around or the children are resentful that mom wasn't around like that's such a a painful thing to try to start dissecting and and undoing and that's why it's it's amazing if you're interested to look up Al-Anon or other there's even meetings 12-step meetings called the family afterward that only talk about this chapter oh wow uh, they have some on the west side of Houston. There's one downtown. I think the west side one meets Saturday nights. Um, and it's a great place to come and learn how to love an alcoholic, <laughs> how to deal with one, how to accept one. And, and in what ways am I getting in the way of helping them or living with them in a positive way? I think that one mistake that happens a lot is the back problems. Melanie, do you know what I mean by the back problems? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they'll say jokingly, that if you get your car back or your job back or your family back too soon, you're on the wrong track. Right. Um, the book says that the spiritual must always precede the material. And so when you're dealing with a loved one and they're wanting to make sure they get the job mm-hmm. or get their, you know, their car out mm-hmm. of the impound or whatever mm-hmm. it is, I need this physical stuff. I need shelter. I need income. I need. Well, cool. Don't don't get those things back too quickly. Because if you'd get those things back again, band-aids, why would you ever seek God? Exactly. And so then you're going to drink again anyway. And I've seen that happen time and time yep. and time again. I The book says job or no job, wife or no wife, you're not going to get over drinking as long as you place uh, you know, material ahead of spiritual. 
I had a lady once tell me that she could get well if I gave her a purse. A purse. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so she got the, so she got through the work and I gave her the purse and she relapsed. Oh, yeah. See, point put, proven. I really thought I was rewarding her. Mm-hmm. But that's my point. It's like uh, the book even warns about, you know, getting your family back too soon and all that. I got sober with nothing. Mm-hmm. I got sober and I stayed sober with nothing. I came to Texas with a black trash bag and like a falling apart broken zipper duffel bag. Um, I didn't get my kids back for the next five and a half years. That's a big one I, I hear all the time. I got to get my kids back. I got to go. I can't be in sober living. I got to get my kids back. Well, if you can't stay sober first, you're no good to your kids, even if you do have them. Yep. You know, and so we got to always make sure we're putting the spiritual ahead of the material. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. We'll be right back. Listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosher. My guest today in the studio, Melanie Ziegler. Welcome. Yay. We're talking about the family afterward. We're talking about how to help a family member or a loved one or a spouse or a child or an aunt or an uncle or a parent navigate your relationship with your family member that got sober. Um, I know that I can say that I never had a really good relationship with my sister. We were like 10 years apart, and I'd always craved this relationship with my sister. And um, I made amends to her back when I was 18 months sober, physically, direct, right? But, man, what's really cool is in the last, I don't know, year, year and a half, dealing with, like, the health problems of my parents and her and I kind of, like, working together to deal with all of that. Um, she'll text me now about how grateful she is to like have a sister and have a Aww. relationship. And um, she's flying out here in January to spend some time with me, you know. Oh my without, gosh. And yeah. I'm, I'm just so excited to like prove I'm different because our behavior convinces them more than our words. And I really needed this time of being a consistently different person. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're starting to believe it and they, they want to have a relationship with me, like my niece and my sister. And because these people wrote me off, I was dead to them. Yeah. And now we have a completely new basis. And I just want to encourage family that it takes time. It does. It takes time. And I think that early on, one of the coolest blessings God gave me was my homelessness, because then I didn't have any other options other than to live in sober living in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Yeah. You know, Oklahoma was like, nope, she can't come here. And and so I got through the steps and I just started sponsoring other women massively, uh, like my life depended on it because I was told that it did. And, and so I didn't have my children at the time. I didn't have a spouse at the time. I wasn't even like fully full-time employed at the time. Yeah. And so I had a lot of time to really throw myself into that and fanatically almost, but it really gave me a strong spiritual ground, a strong connection to God to to operate the rest of my life on and keep building on. Yeah. And so I think that one of working at the detox and stuff when we sometimes, you know, help clients come up with their plan and leaving and discharging the most common mistake that I see is they just always want to go right back home and right back to their normal life. Right. I got to go to work on Monday. <laughs> or, you know, my, my mom won't let me go out of state. She wants me to come back home. My husband needs me to take care of him. Yeah. Or, you know, the kids. I got to go home, take care of the kids. And it's, it's just like, like you're not useful you, when you. <laughs> yep. Because you couldn't stay sober anyway. And, and now we've just taken away the drink, but you haven't done any work. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's the most common mistake. So if you're a family member and you're, your loved one goes to treatment, encourage them to continue some sort of aftercare, yeah. whatever your family can do. Um, the more, the better. Because they need this extended time of a safety bubble, if possible, for the spiritual momentum. And to build a community of, of peers in recovery as well. That's a huge yeah, piece. That relationship of the connection, they, they need that. I think that there's like a line in our book about <clears throat> mining for gold but giving away the entire product. They're using like this uh, gaunt prospector. So it's like, I don't know, this really like emaciated gold gold miner, right? And he's like got his belt drawn Uh over the last morsel, but his pick strikes gold. Uh And so it says, you know, I want to keep it to myself. Uh I've got gold, you know? But it says, man, what the miner doesn't realize is that there's actually a limitless load if he would mine it and but insist on giving away all the product. And so they're using this minor analogy for this like spiritual metaphor. But when I found joy in sobriety and I, and I worked these steps and I found spiritual gold, I was like, cool. And they're like, cool. Now you have to go get, give it away. You have to go sponsor other people. I'm like, but that's going to take a lot of time. Uh-huh. I don't really care about other people. <laughs> I don't want to be inconvenienced. Right. I got better things to do on a Friday night, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm so glad that I was sponsored well and, and it, was not, it wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. Um, that I will do the twelfth step, and mm-hmm. I will pass it on, um, because what I did find is is it's a limitless load. Yeah, of purpose, of being of service, of selflessness. It helps me destroy uh, my self centeredness yeah. by giving it away. The more that I teach someone or take someone else through the steps that I've had an experience with, the more I seem to understand the steps better yeah. and learn it myself or apply it deeper into my life. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I un- definitely understand from a family member's perspective, you have to go out on Friday night again uh-huh. or you're spending $20 on, you know, coffee or IHOP or what your, your, your fellowship is doing. You know, I get it. But it's a spiritual limitless load. And you, the family member, can join in. You are tailor made to help other family members that don't know how to deal with their newly sober loved one as well. And you can be there for them. I don't understand the paradox of it, but the more that you do for others, the happier you seem to get. And and I always like, well, I got to worry about me. Mm -hmm. I got to make sure what I I get what I need or, you know, that my needs are met. And I feel like that's like the selfishness cropping back up. It is. And what I realized is if I stop worrying about me and I just worry about God's kids, God takes care of me. Exactly. And it's just this paradox where I don't have to worry about it. Um, There's another part. What was the other part we wanted to talk about with the family? The feet on the ground. Oh, yeah. So there's this part where it says that they're, they're giving you this warning or this analogy that you want to make sure that your head are, I think I call it spiritual make-believe, right? Yeah. They warn you about being in this land of spiritual make-believe. <laughs> and they say that, yeah, it's okay to have your head in the clouds with God, but your feet better firmly be planted on the ground where, where your fellow travelers are. And so what that literally means is I don't just get to sit in my meditation room for 12, 13 hours a day and but just... that makes me spiritual. <laughs> Not if you're not helping other people. Uh-huh. If it's all about you and only you, it's still self-centeredness. But I, I hand out food to homeless shelters. <laughs> well, good. Uh, you got to start somewhere. But I think that it's one of those things where if you, if I want to get to know God, I got to get to know his kids. Yeah. And it's, again, I can't get sober on my own and I can't grow spiritually 
on my own. I need to be around other people because nine times out of 10, I truly believe this. Maybe this isn't real. Maybe this is not reality and it's just my delusion. But I think God gives us difficult people in order to sand the abrasiveness off of me so that I can learn tolerance or that I can learn patience or, or that I can learn how to respond differently. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage all of our listeners to take that into consideration instead of saying, you don't understand, he does X, Y, Z, and he lies, and he spends my... Cool, what is God trying to show you about yourself and how you respond and how old versus react? Using everyone as your teacher. Right. To go within. The world is your teacher. Yeah. It's like your test. Um, And if I... It's kind of like the angel and the devil on your yeah. shoulder, right? Where, where I can choose to see it in a good, positive light, or I can look for the good, or I can choose to see it from a negative, self-centered, complaining. Because my old life, old Heather, this may surprise you, I complained a lot. <laughs> no, I really can't picture that. I was such a negative person. And um, I, it does, you know the part of the book where it says uh, there's the politician that's lolling oh, uh, in, those, in the Florida, <laughs> Florida sunshine sun, yeah. in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the, the nation. nation yeah. He's retired and he's on the beach. Yeah. And what's he still doing? He's complaining. And that was me. It didn't matter what my situation was. I was finding something negative. It's like if you're driving down I-10 and you're starting to look for yellow cars, you yeah. can start to see a bunch of yellow uh-huh. cars, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Train your brain to look for the good. Train yeah. your brain to look inside you and how you're responding. I encourage Al-Anon for all family members. In fact, part of what Matthew's Hope is launching after the first of the year is, is called uh, Matthew's Hope for Families. Okay. And it's going to be a lot of family support and inclusion uh, as part of our two-year for free aftercare. Yeah. Just become If you come through our detox, each client that completes successfully discharges gets a recovery coach for two years post-discharge for free. In addition to that, they get the eRecovery Connections app by Chess Health, which is an anonymous online platform of, full of people in recovery to encourage each each other 24 7 cool and they get free continued iasis as long as they stay active in recovery support which is microcurrent neurofeedback it makes us very different than every other detox and so i strongly encourage if you or a loved one needs any help or support or if you're just curious if we're not the right fit for you we'd love to refer you to somewhere that is a right fit for you yep um but we're a medical detox in downtown inside saint joseph's hospital and so i'm gonna give you two websites the first website is www matthewshope.org and that's our foundation we're a nonprofit. and the other one is www.matthewshopedetoxandrecoveryprogram.com spell it all out I know it's long phone number 844-263-4673 thank you for listening thank you so much